A quick note of thanks to new listeners and, of course, those who have been here from the beginning for checking this podcast out. Also, much thanks for the kind words in reviews. It means a lot to us and helps motivate us to create better content with each new episode. And now, on with the show. Go to any carnival or any state fair and what can you expect to see? No, I'm not talking about elephant ears, cotton candy, tattoos, or the tilt-a-whirl, although those are likely to be there as well. No, I'm talking about the Ferris wheel. While many know that the Ferris wheel had its debut at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition right here in Chicago, how many of you know where the original Ferris wheel went after the fair ended? I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast, and today we're discussing the Ferris wheel in Lincoln Park. A little about the development of the Ferris wheel and the man for whom the wheel is named, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. Ferris was born in Galesburg, Illinois, about 200 miles southwest of Chicago, and attended the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, where he earned a degree in civil engineering. Although his career began in the railroad industry, he eventually became a construction consultant with a focus on bridge building. He founded the GWG Ferris and Company in Pittsburgh and later opened a satellite office here in Chicago. In 1892, famed Chicago architect Daniel Burnham, who had been named Director of Works for the 1893 World's Fair, was looking for an original technological breakthrough for the World's Columbian Exposition. At first, there was talk of making an even taller tower, one 500 feet taller than the Eiffel Tower, introduced in France a few years earlier at their 1889 World's Fair. Event organizers decided against making a knockoff of Eiffel's Tower. If American engineers were going to retain their prestige among their peers, they needed to create something original and unique. Enter G.W. Ferris. Ferris proposed a revolving observation wheel and even committed $25,000 to develop plans for it. He then formed the Ferris Wheel Company, raising $600,000 in capital for the construction of this wheel, eventually winning the concession to have his wheel on the midway at the 1893 fair. The wheel became a huge hit at the fair, eventually becoming one of the biggest money-making attractions. The observation wheel, which quickly became more commonly known as the Ferris wheel, rose to 264 feet and had 36 cars, each fitted with 40 revolving chairs and able to accommodate up to 60 people, giving a total capacity of 2,160. The wheel carried some 38,000 passengers daily and took 20 minutes to complete two revolutions, the first involving six stops to allow passengers to exit and enter, and the second a nine-minute non-stop rotation for which the ticket holder paid 50 cents. The wheel went around 10,000 times during the World's Exposition and carried 2 million passengers. The largest day's activity at the Ferris wheel was October 10, 1893, when the wheel carried 38,000 passengers. 38,000. 
A week and a half after the World's Fair closed in November of 1893, the exposition sued the Ferris Wheel Company for $75,000. Under a contract made with the promoters of the wheel, the exposition organizers were to receive half of the earnings after earnings exceeded $300,000. Keeping close tabs on admissions, the exposition company claimed they were owed $150,000 after the $300,000 mark was passed. As the wheel company had put a $75,000 deposit down, that left $75,000 owed. The Ferris wheel officers claimed the exposition broke its promise to keep the midway open until January and withheld payment. On January 13, 1894, an article in the Chicago Tribune included this, quote, The owners of the Ferris wheel are proceeding in a leisurely way to take it down. They are not afraid of its burning, and it is too heavy for relic thieves to carry away, end quote. There was no mention of the lawsuit. In February of 1894, Imra Kilralfi, who was a famous Hungarian-born entertainment producer of that time, expressed an interest in bringing the Ferris wheel to London as an attraction at a big amusement park he had planned. But due to outstanding money owed by the Ferris wheel company to the exposition organizers, the fair directors refused for the wheel to be taken down and moved until that money was paid. L.P. Rice, superintendent of the wheel company, said if the deal with Kilralfi fell through, the wheel would be taken to New York and set up at Coney Island. Less than a week later, newspapers carried more of this story, writing that $84,000, a little more than $2.5 million in today's money, was now owed and that officers of the wheel company asked the executive company to reduce that number to $42,000, which was refused. The Minette Club, a leading organization of businessmen on the west side of Chicago, threw their hat in for a chance at bringing the Ferris wheel to a spot near the center of Garfield Park on the west side. They had $10,000 to offer, but were confident they could raise another $90,000 to purchase the wheel and $25,000 more to disassemble and move the wheel from its current spot. On April 14, 1894, it was reported that George Ferris sent a telegraph the day before from New York to Chicago, ordering work to begin on taking down his creation at the Midway, the destination, New York. According to papers of the day, although the deal had not been finished, it is, quote, practically certain that the wheel is to be located somewhere along or near Upper Broadway, end quote. On Thursday, April 26, 1894, preliminary work began to take down the Ferris wheel. It was estimated it would take 10 weeks and a few hundred men throughout the process to disassemble the wheel, with material being loaded onto Illinois Central cars at Woodlawn and 64th Street. The material, including the 70-ton axle, would be taken in five trains of 30 cars each to New York City. The expense of taking it down and moving it east was placed at $150,000. In New York, the wheel would be placed at 37th and Broadway, with the current number of electric lights, 3,000, doubled in New York City. 
By the end of May, George Ferris at the Engineers Club in New York admitted the wheel would take two months longer to take down. He was no longer considering 37th and Broadway, but parts were being sent to New York, and Ferris said, quote, I have a half dozen sites in view, but I must move slowly. I hope to have the wheel running by October and in a central and accessible locality, end quote. By July 23, 1894, the work of disassembling the Ferris wheel was completed with the bill for that part of the job totaling almost $15,000, a little more than $453,000 in today's money. At the end of December that year, the Ferris wheel company was looking at leasing the entire block between 3rd and 2nd Avenues and 63rd and 64th Streets in New York, and it was, quote, Altogether probable the Ferris wheel will be revolving over the property before next summer, end quote. The December 30th Tribune reported that, quote, The remains of the Ferris wheel are piled up along the tracks of the Illinois Central Railroad near Jackson Park, end quote. These days that stuff would be grabbed up by the scrap guys in minutes. While some newspapers in January of 1895 were still talking about the Ferris wheel moving to New York, a January 24th Tribune article was the first I found that hinted the wheel may stay in town and become part of, quote, a pleasure park for pleasure seekers in summertime. On February 26, 1895, a headline in the Tribune read, Wheel to stay here. Ferris's big circular will be put up on the north side. The new plan, one that didn't involve New York, was to install the wheel near Clark Street and Wrightwood Avenue and include additional amusements, including a concert garden filled with high-class attractions. There would be a concert hall as well as a roof garden at the height of the axle, 130 feet off the ground, and refreshments of all kinds would be served. The wheel would run afternoons, evenings, and weekends. Almost immediately, there was strong opposition from those who lived in the neighborhood who did not want, quote, undesirable industrialism invading their residential area, end quote. Neighbors were concerned that the wheel would draw, quote, a low class of visitors, that it would overcrowd the streetcars so that residents would have to walk, that it would keep up a distressing music all night, that the revolution of the wheel would make such a noise so no one could sleep, and that the tremor communicated to the earth would produce vibration in every house within a quarter of a mile, end quote. Two weeks later, Mayor John Patrick Hopkins, who only served two years as mayor of Chicago from 1893 to 1895, and yet has been mentioned twice now in the Chicago History Podcast episodes. Uh, as a reminder, he was the first of nine Irish-American Catholic mayors of Chicago. Uh, Hopkins announced on May 11, 1895, he would instruct the building commissioner to refuse to issue a permit to the Ferris Wheel Company to erect the wheel on the lot on North Clark Street. There was a prohibition ordinance in place at the time by the Lakeview Council forbidding the sale of liquor that would have made operating the wheel, and the wheel being profitable, difficult. Not surprisingly, lawyers for the Wheel Company filed an injunction against the city. They were determined to get that spot for their Ferris Wheel Park at what is today 
2619 through 2665 North Clark Street, on the northeast corner at Clark and Wrightwood. Fortunately for the wheel company, a judge sided with them and plans to wreck the wheel move forward. Ferris's wheel company entered into a partnership with Charles Yerkes, the man behind the heavily used cable car line that would supply visitors to the park, which also ended right by the new park location. According to the book Ferris Wheels, an illustrated history by Norman D. Anderson, originally published in 1983, on June 23, 1895, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld the legality of the ban on liquor in the area. Without a license to sell liquor, the plans for the rooftop beer garden were scrapped and other attractions would need to be cut back. Early plans had the wheel running perpendicular to Clark Street, but when the wheel was finally erected, it ran parallel to Clark Street. I will have pictures of the assembly of the wheel and a link to an early video of the wheel in operation that Block Club Chicago posted a few years back. With all the delays, the wheel had a limited season in 1895, generating little revenue. There was also a depression at the time, which kept many from being able to afford the 25-cent admission and 25-cent ride cost, which combined is about $15.50 in today's money. And by then, the novelty of the big wheel ride had started to fade. At the start of the next season, in May of 1896, managers of the Ferris Company announced they would sell liquor, even though they did not have a license to do so. The matter was before the Supreme Court, awaiting adjudication, but those managers did not want to wait. On Saturday, May 16, 1896, in attendance at the opening of the park for the season were not only those interested in a ride on the wheel, but Captain Schutler of the Chicago PD and 20 officers on hand to make sure no alcohol was sold. The booze remained stacked up near a dozen or so waiters in white aprons with very little to do. Mr. Mangler, no first name, but really with a name like Mr. Mangler, why would you use a first name? Uh, who held the concession for the restaurant and buffet was quoted as saying to a reporter for the Chicago Chronicle, quote, while I have no doubt that a decision will be made in my favor, I shall do nothing not thoroughly sanctioned by the law. The park is to be conducted as a high-class place of amusement, and it would be a poor beginning to transgress the law on the first day. I am to conduct a restaurant, not a saloon or bar room, and while I hope to sell liquor, I shall certainly make no attempt to break or even evade the law, end quote. Visitors to the park, which was open from noon to 11 p.m., were also entertained by Ellis Brooks's Second Regiment Band playing popular musical selections, and those who wanted to stay in a car if they wished to do so were permitted for as long as they wanted. June of 1896 also saw the opening of a theater on the north end of the park for operettas and the like. As bonkers as all this may sound, with all the back and forth with the city and the setup and everything involved, especially if you know the area now, the sight of those 3,000 incandescent lights over Lincoln Park must have been amazing. From a distance. I'm sure for those who lived right there, not so much. By late 1896, with crowds a little thin, the wheel entered bankruptcy. 
management team of the wheel company offered 30,000 shares of preferred stock in the company at $10 per share in November with the funds, quote, to be used to retire the first mortgage bonds and for the erection of such improvements, including Vaudeville Hall, as will enable the company to continue to operate its plant during all seasons of the year, regardless of weather, end quote. Later that month came the news that George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. died suddenly on November 22, 1896, at the age of 37. By then, he had sold off most of his interest in his own company to his partners to satisfy debts. The cause of death listed on his death certificate, typhoid fever. He and his wife, who had been separated for some time, had no children. More than a year after his death, a newspaper reported that Ferris's ashes were still being held by the undertaker for unpaid funeral expenses. The wheel continued operating at a loss for the next few seasons. On April 2, 1900, the Tribune announced the owners of the property would not renew the lease for the money-losing wheel and that demolition would commence in two days. Also, those stockholders they would get 6% of their investment back. Stories about the wheel coming down and possibly going to Berlin did not come to pass, and the push in 1902 to once again try to bring the wheel to Coney Island also did not happen. The wheel continued limping along until finally in 1903, with mounting debts, it could operate no longer. In June of 1903, an article in the Chicago Tribune included the line, There is an opening in Chicago for a bright young executioner who will undertake to put the Ferris wheel out of existence and dispose of the remains. At a receiver sale on June 2, 1903, the wheel was sold at auction for $1,800. The winning bidder an attorney representing a junk firm who agreed to let the wheel operate for five more months. The wheel at that time had $400,000 in debts. The wheel was eventually transported by rail to St. Louis for the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition. The wheel proved quite popular there as well, but after that fair ended and opportunities to move the wheel elsewhere did not pan out, it was finally destroyed using 200 pounds of dynamite on May 11, 1906. The remains were sold off as scrap. The original Ferris wheel had only been in existence for 13 years. As a reminder, the original Ferris wheel was 264 feet tall, and each of its 36 cars could accommodate 60 people. The first Navy Pier Ferris wheel, the one with the red cars, which opened at the pier in July of 1995, was only 150 feet tall, had 40 gondolas that could accommodate six people each. That wheel was later replaced by the current wheel, the Centennial Wheel, which opened in 2016 in honor of Navy Pier's 100th anniversary. The Centennial Wheel is 46 feet taller than the 1985 one at 196 feet, still 68 feet shorter than the original created more than 120 years before. 
the 42 blue gondolas seat up to 10 passengers. And, because America, the gondolas have padded seats, TV screens and speakers, and a climate-controlled system to keep the windows from fogging up as the wheel makes its rounds and keep the tourists comfortable. Although the Ferris wheel has remained a popular attraction the world over, just look at the London Eye in England, it seems a shame that G.W. Ferris never got to see the success of his creation. I think this blurb from an April 1900 newspaper article about the failed wheel may say it best. It seems a pity that so much ingenuity and such a model of mechanical skill should be permitted to go to waste. Such a fact only proves how hazardous it is to be inventive purely in the interests of amusement. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode, and as always, I'd love to hear from you if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will be posting pictures, news articles, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check it out and give us a follow, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening.